This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. If you enjoy this NPR podcast, please consider subscribing. Our podcasts are available on all major podcasting platforms. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify, as well as the accessmedia.nz app. Hello and welcome to Property Matters here at npr.nz. I'm Greg Watson, here to talk to you about all things property, what's going on in our region, nationally and sometimes even internationally. Today we'll look at what's happening in the old High Flyers building. We'll talk about the whether it's good or not, or why it even happens, about building on floodplains. We'll then have a look at whether it's worth buying a house in the current environment, and we'll have a little scan across the market to see what the different sectors of buyers are currently doing. And then if we have time, there'll be a little bit of tenancy and landlord-related matters in there too. But we'll get cracking and see what we can fit into this short half-hour format. So this article from Stuff by Matthew Dallas talks about the brokering of the what they say is the most maligned building in Palmerston North. So this has been sold by commercial agent Kevin Carrion, excuse the pronunciation, and it says to get it done he had to sell the city. So an 86-room, $50 million prestige trip by Wyndham Hotel, that's T-R-Y-P, is set to breathe new life into the old post office building on the square from 2025, exorcising a decade of delay and embarrassment for the once proud century-old site. So the commercial property agent Kevin Carrion was a crucial matchmaker between the building's former owner, Alan Moyes, and hotel developer's Safari Group. It's a landmark deal for the landmark property and a considerable feather in the hat for the born and bred Palmer's North agent who has more experience selling motorcycles than prime real estate. So I used to uh, have the motor- motorbike dealerships including City Honda. Excuse the page-turning sound effect. I do things the old school way. So the, it says in the article, the sorry site on the corner of Main Street and the Square, which never reopened after the High Fires restaurant closed for renovations in 2012, had been a rotting, long-running punchline for any joke against the city CBD. The heritage status meant there were significant strings attached, daunting requirements for protecting its street-side facade. But it was Carrion who four years ago travelled to Auckland and pitched to Moyes for the exclusive right to sell it. He says, I'm a little different to a lot of other agents. I look at things that are quite difficult. Commercial is very difficult. And the thing that I enjoy about it is you get a property that no one tends to be able to sell. It's nice for a city and I find it a challenge. So let's just uh, pop through there. One of the big challenges, of course, he says within the article, is trying to find somebody who's not scared of uh, the money that's required to go into it. So what he did was he got the buyers to look at the building and look at the city and see what it had to offer, how the industrial side of the of the whole country was going. You've got Toyota New Zealand, it's Manawatu Gorge Highway, Massey University, Linton Camp, Ohakia. He needed to get the investors a feel for what's going on in the city. Uh, and they, they did see that we needed a top-class hotel, and that's what, what's brought them on board. And they actually love the building, the developers, which is neat. Carrion's <laughs> uh, is pretty hard to imagine. But they've developed and redeveloped a few heritage buildings before, and they enjoy it. So that's going to be interesting to watch that space transform over the next few years.
Moving on to uh, flooding, which is a little topical at the moment. But this article is actually from a bit earlier in February. It says floodplain areas... So I'll just say that again. Flood-prone areas, the wrong place to build houses, says neighbour. So Palmerston North should heed the lessons of Auckland's floods and not build houses on flood-prone land, says Meadowbrook Drive resident John Anderson. Land over his bank, back fence, formerly known as Whiskey Creek, has been rezoned for the Matangi residential area. Anderson and others made some submissions opposing the change but have not lodged an appeal because of the likely costs. He remains frustrated that his 47 years of local knowledge, having witnessed four significant floods across the site, has not been listened to. With this Auckland stuff, Mayor Wayne Brown has said, we've got some of our city built in the wrong place. Well, this is the wrong place, according to, to John Anderson the Flyger's Investment Group case for rezoning the land bounded by Flyger's line of Rangitiki line was heard by commissioners in June 2022 with a decision allowing the district plan change with conditions released in September. It involves rezoning nearly 13 hectares of rural land as residential to accommodate up to 158 traditional and terraced homes and a further 10 hectares to a conservation and amenity zone. So Palmer's North City Council Principal Planner Michael Duendam said the land was identified as flood prone in the district plan and previous proposals for its development had been resisted, including by the council. But that did not, however, mean that land should be locked up and never released for development. In this case, Duendam said the technical experts at the hearing had demonstrated that flooding could be managed appropriately through conditions at the subdivision stage. Particular provisions would require that flood levels in the nearby residential zone would be reduced or remain unchanged, that flood levels in the rural zone would not increase by more than 50 millimetres, and that all lots in the Matangi area would be raised above the levels of a 1 in 200 year flood, which sounds sensible. I would have thought that he'd go slightly higher than that, but that's okay. Let's have a look. Dwindham said there were very strict conditions in place that would oblige a developer to provide modelling, carry out earthworks and have them certified in order to gain resource consents from Horizons Regional Council. And he says, I don't think I have any, we have anything as stringent as that elsewhere in the city. So there were flood events um, in that area in 1976, 2004 and 2015. So just have to see how that goes. And that leads on to this article quite nicely from the stuff .co.nz National News recently that says, For sale, new warm and dry homes. The catch, they're in a floodplain and the flood is coming sooner than you think. Now this is pretty amazing. There's already 55,000 houses in flood zones in Auckland. Many of them were inundated in the recent deluge, including some that were just a few years old. So why are we continuing to build in these areas and can we prevent it? And this is an investigation by Kate Newton. She gives an example of uh, Diane Tiny, excuse the pronunciation, wasn't bothered when the rain first come. It started out on the road, we thought nothing of it, roads got swamped, that's fine. A little later, one of her children said, Mum, look outside. Things were no longer fine. Diane saw cars floating in the street. Her neighbours across the road were already up to their waists in water, and the flood water was lapping at Diane's door. She watched it creep inside the house across the plush new carpet, soaking into her furniture as the family rushed to lift everything they could to safety. So by the time that the rain finally stopped around midnight, the basement was flooded out and the entire ground floor was awash in a foot of water. 
So many, many families in Auckland have a similar story to tell of the January 27th flood, frantic attempts to shift possessions out of harm's way, wading safety through chest-high floodwaters. Man, that's that's scary. Evacuations through top-story windows. Another lady, Tia Toria Katia, has lost everything in the flood, is now uh, living with 15 others in a three-bedroom home. They show a picture of, of their situation in this article. Let's talk, go back to Diane that we were talking about a minute ago. What sets her and her neighbours in Ventura Street apart from any others, though, is that these weren't old houses. These built in flood zones where anyone had heard of climate change. This house is just over three years old. And she, four of her children, two of her grandchildren, were the first to move into the dozens of brand new Kainga Ora townhouses in a mixed housing development known as Mangere West in the South Auckland. An upbeat brochure from late 2019 shows a beaming Diane holding up keys to her new home. Hundreds more houses, including Kiwi Build and Open Market Homes, will eventually replace older state housing. Te Ararata Stream flows down the middle of the development, and wider Mangere is the lowest lying land in Auckland. Together, these factors mean that development lies almost entirely on a flood zone. So what do we know about this? Well, since the beginning of uh, 2016, Auckland Council has granted resource consent for almost 10,000 new dwellings and floodplains, and that's effectively areas where the runoff from waterways will flow. Then uh, just over 4,000 dwellings in flood-prone areas, uh, which are things like depressions, dips and gullies where rainwater can collect. And there isn't data for the number of dwellings consent on land that are also overland flow paths, which are the routes taken by stormwater when the normal stormwater system is overhauled. So it's going to be, uh, going to be interesting to see. And they, they show in this article various flood-prone or floodplain areas and I guess as per the Palmer's North article uh, that uh, councils can try to plan for this by raising the housing but certainly there's going to be a lot of hard questions asked around that. There is also a little bit in this article that says when the worst case scenario keeps changing the one in 100 event that councils, developers and engineers are all meant to plan for is really a slightly misleading turn of phrase. What it actually means that in any given year there is a 1% chance of the event occurring. Now, Belinda Story, a senior research fellow at the Victoria University's Climate Change Research Institute, says the problem with that is that the risk has been calculated at a fixed point in time. If you're currently at 1%, that is only going to go up to climate, with climate change from 2% to 4%, so 4% risk in any one year that uh, you may be flooded. So it's interesting to see how that's going to change and whether councils need to take that into account. So stormwater engineers and climate research, research, sorry, climate change researchers and community advocates are all in on this um, development picture. And really it's um, going to be interesting to see if Auckland needs to or makes changes from what has happened in this case or if it is still uh, something that, uh, that we'll just have to see um, on a case-by-case basis as these floods come through. But uh, certainly... I believe, of course, buyers of properties would be told that uh, there is they are either in floodplain or otherwise. Uh, I know the house that I'm living in, I won't say where it is, but theoretically could flood, yet the house itself is about a metre and a half above the ground on a sloping section. So it can certainly be done to have uh, the drainage go certain directions apart from the housing itself. 
change of subject now. And this article from Stuff, Miriam Bell, says, looking to move, is it better to hold, sell or rent out your home? And the downturn at the moment in the housing market has left many homeowners who want to move on torn about whether to sell their home or wait. But really the decision depends on circumstances. And of course it always does. You always do what's best in your life. And they talk about various experts here. And Brad Olson from Inframetrics, the principal economist, says there are a lot of people who may want to move but do not have to sell right away. And those people just wait for the downturn out a bit and see what happens. But it's difficult if someone has to move for some reasons, such as a new job in another city. And in that situation, he says, might be better to sell now because of the uncertainties if they hold. Now, here in the Manawatu, I actually tend to disagree with that. Um, he may be talking more in the Auckland area or nationally. Um, if you can hold for a little bit, it's probably a good thing to do. Um, not, not necessarily to sell now, uh, unless you have to. And, and I believe that rents will start to uh, climb again probably in mid-2024, just once this election year is out the way. So what do some other experts say? Nadine Higgins, who's an Enable Me Financial Advisors, uh, say, says that if people are moving now, they're simply buying and selling in the same market, which is true. So if you get less for your house now, um, and you'll pay less for a house now. So that's something to consider. If you're moving in the same area, and in the same environment, then really um, nothing much has changed. They talked to Liz Coe, a retirement financial coach, and she's the one who says it should come down to personal circumstances and considerations about the type of property. So it's really all about the reason why you want to move. Job, lifestyle and relationship changes often come into it, and that puts a lot of weight or should have more weight in the decision-making process than fluctuations in house prices. Tony Alexander says, again, if people are buying and selling in the same market, it doesn't matter if they sell now or wait, unless they're a gambler focused on capital gains. Some people may want to move, who want to move, maybe wondering if they can make a profit by selling at a good price and buying at a lower price. If that's their focus, they're trying to time the market and they just have to take a risk based on that. The thing is, no one has the ability to predict over a one-year time period what the market will do. And, uh, and he compares it to other assets like gold or cryptocurrency. So what would I, what would I suggest? Um, and, uh, well, I think that uh, if you, a good option is to rent out your property. So if you're moving away for a period of time and it works for you financially, you could rent it out. There's very good insurances in place these days to cover uh, rented properties. And maybe then you can sell in a couple of years' time if the market improves, if that's of importance to you. Otherwise, you could sell here, of course, and buy where you're going to, knowing that at least at the moment the market's not shooting up like it was um, in reasonably recent times. This article says uh, how to invest in property in the current economic environment. This is by Hannah McQueen from Stuff Business. It is an opinion piece. But she is a financial advisor, a chartered accountant, personal finance author, and the the founder of Enable.me. For many people, leverage, that is borrowing the bank's money to invest in an asset like property, is the key tool to have in their toolbox for closing the retirement savings gap. It might not be particularly popular, but it's the reality. Most people either have a gap that's too big or a time frame that's too short to close it with savings alone. But the current market with falling prices and rising interest rates has made people nervous, and even though those same conditions mean there are good buys to be had, While you wait to feel comfortable enough to act, the runway to your retirement is getting shorter. 
to my mind, that is Hannah McQueen's words, the current environment doesn't mean it's a bad time to invest, but it's a bad time to invest poorly without a plan to mitigate risks and a strategy to hold your investment for the long term. Because of course there are risks, as with any investment, it's just that we're prone to overlook them when the times are buoyant and overstate them when they're not. So here's some of these things that you can help mitigate. So bank lending. One of the key risks right now is the bank. If you go unconditional on a new build property, the bank's lending criteria could change before you settle. Could use up its, it could up its test rate to decide it doesn't want to lend you as much as it indicated it would at the outset. Uh, the value would come in with a lower valuation and again the bank will lend you less. It's annoying but possible. You can de-risk that by spending the time while the property is being built, that is, the period between going unconditional and settlement, strengthening your financial foundations, saving more, paying down debts, building up your buffer and making sure you're a better candidate to the bank. The good news is if you can clear the hurdle of the current test rates, which are in the mid-8s, that's 8.5%, you should be in a strong position to hold property for the long term. What if a builder goes bust or doesn't finish the property? The building and development industry is very cyclical. The businesses within it can be high risk, high reward, and some come a cropper in the economic cycle, and that's a genuine risk. For that reason, do your homework on the builder and the developer, understand their reputation and how their business model works, how secure is their funding and what's their track record. If you're investing in a turnkey property, that's where you put down a deposit and then don't pay anything until the property settles, ensure your deposit is held in the solicitor's trust account, not in the builder's or developer's uh, pocket. That way, if they don't complete it, you get your money back. Don't invest with anyone for whom that isn't standard practice. If it's a land and build property, only pay for work that has been completed and never ever hand over a final payment if the property isn't complete or if you're not completely satisfied. In terms of an investor, what if I can't get tenants? In reality, the risk is less that you'll have your property empty for months on end, but rather that you may have to discount the rent to secure tenants. So this comes back to strengthening your financial foundations and modelling the scenarios. So you know you can bridge any shortfall between rent and the mortgage for a period of time. So if, if there is uh, less demand in the market, uh, yeah, don't have a property sit empty, just reduce the rent slightly and that works better. And what if the prices fall? If you're a property investor, as opposed to the, the, the buy and flick on ones, what happens to property prices this week or next month or even next year shouldn't concern you. Your concern should be investing in the right property in the first place and then working on your hold strategy so you can own it for the long term and then sell when the conditions suit you. So I thought that was quite a, quite a good article there. And following on uh, the advice for property investors there, this article from Miriam Bell in Stuff Business Property says property investors will not be making a comeback anytime soon. So investors who needed a loan to buy their next property made up only 21% of all property purchases in the last quarter of 2022, and that's actually the lowest portion on record. Cashed up investors are relishing the housing market downturn, but mortgaged investors are not going to flood back into the market in the foreseeable future. CoreLogic says. The property research company's latest buyer classification figures showed mortgage investors currently had around 21% of shares, and that's dropped right down from the 29% share that they had in early 2021. There have been an increasing number of hurdles placed in front of investors in the past couple of years, and that made it tough to get the numbers to stack up on an investment property, according to Kelvin Davidson, senior property economist from CoreLogic. Challenges included the introduction of a 40% deposit requirement of buying an existing property, the removal of interest deductibility and increased compliance costs. Gross rental yields were also low, while serviceability tests were tougher and mortgage rates were higher. 
Davidson said the decline in market share had been bigger for those with fewer properties and had suggested mum and dad investors had found the going tough tougher than the bigger landlords. That makes sense in the current market conditions, given, given having the resources or banking relationships for a deposit to keep buying is challenging. So mortgage investors are not out the game completely, as the 21% share meant they accounted for one in every five deals, he said. Clearly, some investors are still finding value, and anecdotally, there are relative bargains to be picked up, with some developers looking to shift new build stocks so they can crack on with their next pro- project. In the weak market, others will simply be doing deals on existing properties at a discount. But it was a cash buyers with multiple properties, which included people using funds freed up by reshuffling debt on other properties in a portfolio, were making the most of market conditions. CoreLogic's figures showed the buyers group share of purchases had risen to a record high of 15% now from 10% in 2021. Davidson said that in a market where finance was restricted and costly, it stood to reason that cash was king, but for most investors, other considerations were in play. And these included whether a national party election win might lead to the reinstatement of interest deductibility and how lending rules might evolve with the introduction of formal caps on debt-to-income ratios in 2024 a possibility, he says. As mortgage rates Finally peak in the next few months, we may see sales activity pick up a bit in the second half of the year and prices in many parts of the country find a floor. But many would-be investors will be weighing up the need to top up a property investment's cash flow from other income sources over a three- to five-year horizon versus the scope for renewed capital gains, which are uncertain and only realised on paper. So in the goodreturns.co.nz had a, had a similar uh, a similar article there where they reiterate um, it's pretty hard to have a crystal ball about the the ongoing uh, capital gains on properties. So really investors are concerned about whether they can buy and get into uh, get into the market. Just another other news recently, you may have uh, noticed that there was a, a new website launch that allows renters to find out how many properties their landlords own. Now investors own 36% of all Kiwi homes – but the new website allows renters to find out how many properties their landlord owns. But despite using publicly available information, the Privacy Foundation says it breaches privacy principles. So the website whatdoesmylandlordown.org allows users to search the address of their rental, see its owners and see what other properties they might own. Some users reported difficulty in searching the site uh, just prior to this article coming out. The creators of the website, who name themselves Sunset underscore Flowers, point to the conditions and standards of rental housing and the accumulation of property wealth as the justification for the system. Using publicly available information, this search tool enables anyone in Aotearoa to look up an address and view any additional properties owned by the landholder, the website states. This gives renters, journalists, activists and tenancy advocacy groups a better picture of land ownership structures and the opportunity to discover multiplicitous offending and the ability to seek accountability for exploitative practices. Newman said income asset and property ownership inequality were well-known issues in New Zealand but the solution should come from lawmakers, not from breaching privacy principles. He said one solution that might might be the publication of government properties that did not meet healthy home standards. Or, or sorry, I read that wrong there. So publication by the government of properties that did not meet healthy home standards. So, um, yeah, it's pretty pretty scary. I think that site um, may be closed down now. We'll have to see, just awaiting further uh, further development, et cetera, on that story. So 
Um, it's a bit scary because if you look up what properties uh, that were owned by myself you'd, on public sources, or at least the sources through that, you would probably find uh, my personal home, which is something that's you know, probably a privacy concern there as well. Finally, uh, just from the tenancy law, um, the tenancy tribunal slices a rent increase. A 30% rent increase foisted on an Amberley North Canterbury tenant has been slashed by the Tenancy Tribunal. This according to the Good Returns website. In an unusual move, the Tribunal has decided the increase to market rent, it says in inverted commas, from 320 to 420 a week was excessive and cut it back to 370 a week. The Tribunal says it was at a loss to understand how landlord Rowan Jane's Turnbull could consider a 30% rent increase to tenant Julian Richards reasonable and justified. Adjudicator Jay Green says the tribunal does not lightly interfere with rent charge, but Section 25 of the Residential Tenancy Act, which deals with market rent determinations, was enacted for a reason. Market rent is defined as the rent that a willing landlord might reasonably expect to receive and a willing tenant might reasonably expect to pay, taking into account the general level of rents for comparable tenancies of comparable premises in the locality. So reasonableness is the key word uh, in that statutory provision. So Green said he found the rent increase to 4.20 per week, later reduced to 400, exceeded the market rent by a substantial amount. The property manager ameliorated that, but even then the rent at $400 per week still exceeded the market rent. So based on evidence both parties produced, Green found the market rent for the property was $370,000 per week, $30 less than the rent increase eventually settled on. The rent increase took effect 60 days after the rent increase notice, so the time period involved was about nine weeks, and with the tribunal's decision on fair rent, Turnbull was ordered to refund rent of $270 to Richards. The tribunal says what the case between Turnbull and Richards illustrates how one decision, possibly in hindsight ill-advised, to significantly increase the rent can destroy a landlord-tenant relationship that had been without issue before then. Both parties agreed the landlord's decision to raise rent to market rent was a catalyst for everything that followed. But often landlords give no thought to the consequences for a tenant of such a large rent increase, Tribunal Green says. In this case, the rent increase was reduced to 400 per week after the property manager Four Seasons Realty was hired by Turnbull, but by then the relationship had been damaged irreparably. So for Richards, that sent in chain, uh, chain and process where he almost forensically looked at Every perceived defect and repair issue, which before then had not concerned him, he relentlessly emailed the landlord. His tone changed completely, became demanding and objectively viewed unreasonable in his dealings with the landlord, Green says. So the outcome, uh, because there was quite a lot more to this case, which I won't go into today, but the, the outcome was having to refund the amount that was considered not to be reasonable in the rent. So any tenant, if you got a rent or a rent increase that you feel is too high relative to the market, that is the correct way of going about it, is to apply at Tenancy Tribunal and have that determined from an outside source. And that's all we've got time for this week on Property Matters. I'm Greg Watson. It's been lovely having your company. And if you did want to find more information or other episodes, just go to mpr.nz, one or two people's radio, or alternatively have a look where all good podcasts are found. Just Google Property Matters and Greg Watson. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch up with you again next week. If you're enjoying this podcast in Manawatu, you could make your very own, just like this one. NPR exists to help people like you tell your story 
or share your passion on air and online. Check out npr.nz for more information. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.npr.nz forward slash donate.